This morning's reading uh, will be uh, Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise thy great and awesome name. Holy is he. And the strength of the king loves justice. Thou hast established equity. Thou hast executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, thou didst answer them. Thou wast a forgiving God to them, and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. Don't worry, you don't have to put up with another sermon from me. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Obviously, Tim is back in New Jersey. Um, All indications were that uh, Kayla and Eric successfully got married. Uh, And uh, Tim wrote this morning that they were, uh, they had enjoyed the worship service uh, at at church with Daniel Holmquist. So um, praying for them in that. So this morning we have a very special guest speaker, uh, Jeff Howell. Uh, Jeff uh, is from uh, Faith Community Church New Hall, uh, the church where Kathy and I went for a long time. Jeff and I have served alongside each other for decades. <laughs> long time. We've we've worked together, served together uh, at Faith Community. Uh, Jeff's been up here before. Uh, this is, I think, his third time. Uh, he's been, I've variously introduced, there they go, you know Jeff, you introduce him. Uh, I've introduced him as associate pastor. I've introduced him as, as the business manager of the church. Um, actually, if you look at the job description, it says just what Jeff does. Um, if they ever replace him, it's going to be, we're going to have to find Jeff. The position is just called Jeff now. So um, Steve, uh, the pastor out there has said that uh, he just preaches, Jeff does everything else. So, uh, Jeff, I uh, look forward to um, hearing from you this morning. Good morning. I am the associate pastor of church administration at Faith, which means I do all the boring stuff, and um, the other guys get to do all the exciting stuff. But we really believe in what we do, and it's a joy to serve down there. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, too. I, I've been here twice before. Uh, I don't know if any of you remember me. I myself have tried to forget those sermons, so I don't blame you if you uh, have likewise done the same. Also, in just a few hours, Pastor Miguel Bocanegra will be here preaching to the Spanish brothers and sisters of your church. He's a colleague of mine at Faith Community as well. He's a dear brother, and uh, I told him I'd warm up the pulpit for him today. So here we go. My question to you to start out is, have you ever been stranded? 
Just think back over your life. Perhaps you've been stranded in an airport. Or maybe you've been on a road trip and the car gives out. Or maybe you've been stranded in the middle of an intersection because you ran out of gas because you forgot to fill up your tank. I've done that one. It's exciting. Trust me. Um, my intention today is to strand you in the thought of God. When I, was a first, when I first became a believer 23, 25 years ago, I was age 23, you know, I entered the faith with quite a bit of things to untangle in my brain. Uh, the way that I viewed the world, my worldview, I guess is how they say it now, my decision-making, my habits, etc., etc. Because for the first time, I realized that God had a say about all of those things, and that it mattered to him how I conducted myself and, and how I represented him as a new creature, a new creation of his. So studying the attributes of God at that time was extraordinarily important for me because for the first time, I began to understand who God really was. And further, I began to understand who, who I am and who man is. And that was extremely helpful to me at the time because it started to solve some problems I had in my life, like the fear of man. I mean, if God is God and, and man is just man, why am I afraid of man as if man is God? That was a problem I struggled with. I worked for the legislature at the time. I was in the government. And it, you trust nobody, and you climb over who you need to to get to the next thing. That's what it seemed like. And so man could be very scary as you thought about a career and as you thought about surviving in that environment. But as I began to study the attributes of God, I, I came across verses like Romans 8.31, which Kyle put us onto this morning. If God is for us, who can be against us? And since my conversion over the last 25 years, every time I've come back to the attributes of God, I've been able to gain much-needed perspective on life issues, struggles I'm having in life. Things like how to handle anxiety, knowing that God is sovereign, that he, you know, the providence of God in terms of trusting him for provision, dealing with hardship and inequity in my life. There will not be justice on earth quite the way that there will be justice with God. Feeling abandoned in a trial. Has God really forsaken me? Has he, has he forgot about me? Well, we can open up the psalm and we can see that David didn't think he was forsaken, although it sure felt like he did at times. Nonetheless, the study of God's attributes has, has, has been a buoy to me throughout the course of my life. And I would state that as the children of God, we never outgrow the benefits of drinking deeply of God's attributes. Perhaps you yourself have done that over the years and you've benefited from that. This past summer at Faith Community Church, we went through a, a series about the essential attributes of God. Essential is another word of saying the incommunicable attributes of God. And when we talk about the incommunicable attributes, we're talking about those attributes which pertain to God alone. They are what makes God God. We as those created in his image don't share these certain attributes with God. So given that my intention is to strand you in the thought of God today, let me begin with a quick summary 
of some of the startling implications of God's essential or incommunicable attributes. First, consider the simplicity of God. When we say that God is simple, this has to do with the fact that God is not a compound made up of parts. If God is not a compound who is made up of parts, that means he can't be divided and he can't be added to. He is not a collection of a bunch of attributes, and you need all of them in order to get the whole. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that God is all of his attributes all the time, simultaneously. For instance, he is love at the same time that he is wrath. He is just at the same time that he is merciful. God is not made up of parts that can change somehow over time. Said one writer, all that is in God simply is God. There is none like him. He is supreme. This is our God. Consider also the aseity of God. The aseity of God has to do with the fact that God is of himself, meaning he has no origin. He has always been. He is self-sufficient and has no needs. He is necessary, and we are contingent upon him for our life and our breath and our strength and our love and everything. We are contingent upon him for all of these things. God holds everything together, and consequently, he is worthy of all glory, rightfully so. This is our God. Consider the stability of God. This has to do with the fact that God does not change. Theologians will say that God is immutable, and that's what immutability is, the fact that God does not change. Our pastor, when he preached on it, said that God is being while we are constantly in a state of becoming something or the other. Hopefully, we're moving toward the good. We're moving toward improvement, hopefully. But God has no potential. Because God is actual. God is a rock. And likewise, so is his word. So we can and must build our lives on the rock of his stability if we are to have any stability in our own lives in this uncertain world. This is our God. Unchanging. Stable. Consider the spirituality of God. This references the fact that God is spirit. Okay, if God is spirit, that means he cannot be contained. This means he is omnipresent. Perhaps you've heard that term before. Omnipresent, everywhere present is another way to say that. Now, testing our geometry brains, it's been said that God is like a sphere whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. God is present everywhere, at times manifesting his presence in special obvious ways, such as the pillar of cloud above the tabernacle. Again, we sang about that this morning too, how God appeared to his, or we read about that rather, as we, we read about how God appeared in the pillar of cloud to his people. And for New Testament believers, God is present in our hearts through the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
God is everywhere present and cannot be contained. This is our God. Consider the eternality of God. This has to do with the fact that time cannot measure or contain God. God is everlasting and he inhabits eternity. That's how Isaiah says it in Isaiah 57, 15. God has no beginning. He, had no, he has no end. God is not bound by the sequence of time like we are. Our pastor said that God exists in an instantaneous whole, lacking successiveness. That means that he sees the present, he sees the past, he sees the future all at once. And he can operate within time, but exists outside of time. Who else can do that? God sees all the sins that we commit, even the ones we haven't committed yet. God is eternal. God knows the beginning from the end. It is all laid bare before him. This is our God. And lastly, consider the omnipotence of God. This has to do with the all-powerfulness of God. He never tires, his strength never diminishes. God is power, and all power we have derives from him. But whereas our power is finite, God's power is infinite. There's nothing God cannot do. The God who knit us together in our mother's womb is the same God who can touch the mountains and make them smoke. God is omnipotent. This is our God. These then are the essential or incommunicable attributes of God, which pertain only to him. Aren't you glad there is no scripture that says, Go ye therefore and be omnipresent. Or, the Lord says, be spirit as I am spirit. There would be no way, it would be impossible for us to obey those commands, to fulfill those expectations. Because these essential attributes are God's alone. But that's not true of every attribute of God. Some attributes are called the moral attributes or the communicable attributes. And that means that we can and should reflect them in our lives. Today, we will focus on one such attribute, the holiness of God. Now, we won't have a PowerPoint today, for we don't need one. My outline is very simple. I plan to ask and answer three questions. Question number one, what is Holiness. Question number two. What is holy? And question number three. What is our response? So there's your preaching outline. What is holy? What is holiness? What is holy? And what is our response? Let's pray together. Father, we come to this time eager to hear from you, eager to hear from your word, and I am grateful and humbled that you've chosen me to be a mouthpiece for that, but Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word, that I would 
be able to share what needs to be said and not say what doesn't need to be said. I pray, Lord, that we would be stranded in the thought of God. I pray that you would call us, Lord, to account for who you are and and what we're doing with that truth. Help us, Lord, to apply the precepts that we learned today through this study. Help me, Lord, to be courageous as I declare your word and, and just to do it for your honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you to lend me your imagination for a few minutes. Suppose you come across a man, and he has never seen the sea. He's heard about the sea, but he's never seen the sea. And he comes to you with a singular plea. Help me understand the sea. So you decide to take him to the beach. And you can pick whatever vantage point you want. The entire coast of California is open to you, even the exclusive places that you'll never get to. You can go there. You can pick any piece of beach you want and take this man to explain to him what the sea is. And so from that vantage point with the tang of the salt in the air and the breeze gently blowing your hair, you show the man the seagulls and the pelicans and leaping dolphins and seals at play and little crabs and even jellyfish. Watch out for those. And the man takes this all in and he exclaims, there is life in the sea. And then you point out the mighty crash of the waves and the way the water carves the sand and the rhythmic retraction of the undertow. And the man takes us all in and he confesses, there is power in the sea. You then encourage the man to look from side to side as far as he can see that way, as far as he can see that way as far as he can see straight out, maybe even to the curvature of the earth. And with wonder, the man says, there is vastness to this sea. You then point out the rocks that jut out of the water, and you call his attention to the the seafloor, which is revealed as the water goes out, and there's sandbars out there that you can see, and you can see the way that the coastline kind of jags and jogs and goes in a a very uh, interesting pattern. The man takes this all in and he declares, there is such compelling nuance and contour in the sea. Beholding all of this, the man eventually turns to you with tears in his eyes and says, thank you. I now understand everything about the sea. My quest is complete. And he walks away. Now, when it comes to holiness, both God's and ours, are we ever like that man who from the shoreline observes the sea and declares he now fully understands it? Oh yes, he made correct and valid observations about what he saw and what he learned. But does he know that the life he observed is but a percent 
of a percent of a percent of all the life that's in the sea? Has he really observed the full extent of the power of the sea by watching it roll up and down one particular beach? Do the few miles of horizon that he saw truly depict the actual immensity of the sea, which wraps all the way around this globe? Is his perception of the contour and the shape of the sea truly representative of the length and depth and breadth of it? His conclusion that he now understands everything about the sea seems rather inconclusive. And his mindset that his quest is now complete is unfortunate. Just think of how much wonder and surprise and grandeur and beauty and mystery he will miss out on because he already thinks he knows everything that can be known. If you'll permit the analogy, how goes our quest to understand the life and power and immensity and length and breadth and depth of our God? And specifically, as it pertains to holiness, are we content with the little bit we know and live out? Do we investigate, contemplate, and appreciate God's holiness like we should or like we once did? As a new believer, when you first experience the grace of God and you try to reconcile the fact, why would someone like him want somebody like me? Doesn't he know? Yeah, he actually does know that you're a wretched sinner, and he still chose you. Do we investigate, contemplate, and appreciate God's holiness like we used to? Or like we should? Does this factor into the way we live our lives? Now, trust me, I am not up here trying to throw stones in a glass house. Um, as I applied myself to the study of this message, I kept seeing how easy it was to not factor God's holiness into my thinking and attitudes and responses and actions. The more I focused on God's holiness, the more I realized how much more mindful I need to be. So, I offer this message as a help for me and for you to think rightly about the holiness of our God and what it should mean for us. According to A.W. Tozer, one of those great pastor scholars of days gone by who wrote such a helpful work on the attributes of God. There isn't any use for anybody to try to explain holiness. The greatest speakers on this subject can play their oratorical harps, but it sounds tinny and unreal. And when they are through, you've listened to music, but you haven't seen God. Well, I guess I have an impossible job then this morning, don't I? But it's no surprise. Understanding the full measure of God's attributes is impossible. 
for it's impossible to exhaust the truth of who God is. We are finite creatures trying to understand an infinite creator. Still, try we must, for God wishes to be known by us. He has revealed himself to us through his creation. He has revealed himself to us through our consciences. And he has revealed himself to us through his word, both the written word and the living word, Jesus Christ. So, beloved brethren, let us humbly peer together into the attribute of God's holiness. Now, to begin a topical study like this, I usually like to see just how prevalent is this idea in the scripture. So I took the ESV, used my software to do this because I can't do it myself. I tried to find all the times that the word holy appears in the Bible and holiness as well. And I searched on a few other terms as well. So let me, let me just tell you what I found. Consider the word joy. If I take all the Old Testament occurrences of the word joy and I add to them all the New Testament occurrences of the word joy, I come up with a total of 179 times that the word joy is mentioned. And just specifically the word joy. That's pretty, pretty prevalent. 179 times your Bible's telling you something. How many times do your parents have to tell you something before you do it? I mean, some of us. <laughs> or how many times do you have to tell your kids? Maybe that's the better one to do something. 179 times about joy. Love. Well, the word love appears 551 times. It's quite a bit. And the word holy, 665 times. Add on all the occurrences of holiness, and you have direct mentions of holiness 698 times in your Bible. So I think we can fairly conclude that holiness is a key theme of Scripture. There's a lot that can be said. There's a lot that can be learned and known. Now, not every single one of those references is about God's holiness, of course. And when you have a verse like, holy, 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 that's, that counts for three. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> the point is that this morning, there's no way I'm going to be able to cover every single one of those verses. I thought about coming in and assigning you, each of you, 23 verses, and we would just go around and read them. And you'd be hearing from the Lord this morning, and I'd be totally fine with that. But the more I thought on it, it became impractical. And so really, I'm picking and choosing here, but hopefully I can give you a sense for what the Scripture says about the holiness of God. Okay, to understand holiness, we first need to define it. Here we are at our first point. What is holiness? There are two aspects to the holiness of God. And what's really great, we sang that song, Only a Holy God. That actually gave you the answer already. You already sang the answer, whether you knew it or not. The first aspect to the holiness of God is the fact that he is set apart, or what's been called his majestic holiness. That's what MacArthur and Mayhew say in their commentary, their systematic commentary. But God's holiness, the first part is the fact that he is set apart, he has a majestic holiness. In other words, God is distinct. He is high and lifted up, in the words of Isaiah. 
There's a majesty to, that pertains to all that he is and all that he does. And this is amply illustrated in the scripture. Just picking and choosing here. Consider Moses, Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. They had just witnessed one of the greatest miracles on the face of the planet for all time. They had just come through the Red Sea. They had just seen the Egyptian army destroyed and Israel preserved. And what does Moses say in Exodus 15, 11? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? There is none like God, is the answer to those rhetorical questions. Or consider what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 96, 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. God is here. All the earth is here, trembling before God. Another picture of the majesty of his holiness. Or consider Psalm 99, which our brother read this morning. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Again, just depicting this set-apartness of God, this, this majestic holiness that is his and his alone. Writes J.I. Packer, when scripture calls God or individual persons of the Godhead holy, the word signifies everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him an object of awe, adoration, and dread to us. It covers all aspects of his transcendent greatness and moral perfection, and thus is an attribute of all of his attributes, pointing to the godness of God at every point. Have you ever heard scripture talk about the holy love of God or the holy justice of God? That's what he means when he says that it is an attribute of all of his attributes. All that God does is holy. So, by God's holiness, we, on the one hand, mean his set-apartness, his position, his majestic holiness. And then there's the second part I promised you as well. The second aspect of God's holiness is his purity, or his moral holiness. So we have majestic holiness and his moral holiness. Let me explain. Continues J.I. Packer, every facet of God's nature and every aspect of his character may properly be spoken of as holy, just because it is his. The core of the concept, however, is God's purity, which cannot tolerate any form of sin, and thus calls sinners to constant self-abasement in his presence. God possesses an unimpeachable moral holiness. God cannot sin. Further, God is not a tempter. Uh, think about James chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. You may have heard this somewhere along the way. 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Or if you prefer the words of James's brother John, we could look at 1 John 3, chapter 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, this is obviously a reference to Jesus. John is saying that Jesus is pure. But realize this, the entire Trinity shares the same attributes. For each of the three members of the Trinity are of one essence, and that essence possesses all the attributes of God, including holiness and purity. So when we say God is holy, we're talking about the Father, the Son, and of course the Holy, Holy Spirit as well. So putting it all together, the holiness of God refers to his position as being uniquely above, separate from, and over all creation, as well as his purity, which is what makes him distinct. Let me add a little bit more perspective on this definition. MacArthur and Mayhew say this, God's holiness is his inherent and absolute greatness, in which he is perfectly distinct about, above everything outside himself and is absolutely morally separate from sin. Or consider David Wells. Holiness in God is everything that sets him apart from the sinful creation, and it is everything that elevates him above it in moral splendor. Or consider what Richard Lintz says. The holiness of God refers to the absolute moral purity of God and the absolute moral distance between God and his human creatures. I hope this layered approach to defining the holiness of God has caused you to really ponder him and his greatness. Getting lost in the thought of God is often the best place to find yourself. All right, we've answered the question, what is holiness? And now we move on to a second question, what is holy? What is holy? The 1986 Chevy Cavalier station wagon in bright red. I remember when our faithful old blue Dodge Aspen station wagon gave up the ghost and needed to be replaced. So we went to our neighborhood Chevy dealer to experience the heartbeat of America. We came home with that Cavalier and to a 10 year old, the driveway became as holy ground. And why not? According to a February 2023 article in Car and Driver magazine, the Chevy Cavalier was the best-selling car in America in 1984. 383,752 units sold. And again in 1985, with 422,927,000 units sold. And the year after that, it was the Escort or something. But this thing sat in our driveway. And we were proud, and the sun was just a little bit brighter. 
and the birds sang a little bit sweeter. And we were careful not to spill in the car. And, uh, you know, we had bikes, and, <clears throat> you know, on bikes, the rubber handles kind of get pushed in and the pipe sticks out. We were really careful when we went by the car not to scrape the car with the pipes coming out of our handlebars. And then about a year or two later, on the way home from the Christmas tree lot, flames started shooting out from underneath the hood. And the fire company came to our house. And I lived in a state far away, not in wildfire country. The fire company never came to our house or our neighborhood. But this night they came. And the entire neighborhood came outside and there were the fire trucks. And then there was this day I heard my dad on the phone with the mechanic, a catalytic what? Oh yes, the catalytic converter had become standard equipment and the pain of needing to replace one had begun. Needless to say, the driveway was no longer holy ground. The Cavalier was a faithful steed until it too was turned in and we got a Bronco instead. You know, we, we sometimes treat things in a special way because we consider them valuable or they're new or it's something we just really like. Maybe you have your own thing that you can relate to, kind of like I do to that old Cavalier. When it comes to understanding the holiness of God, however, what makes something outside of him holy is due to him personally setting it apart. Writes A.W. Tozer, he, God, is himself the holiness. He is the all-holy, the holy one. He is holiness itself, beyond the power of thought to grasp or of word to express beyond the power of all praise. Language cannot express the holy, so God resorts to association and suggestion. He cannot say it outright because he would have to use words for which we have no meaning. He would have to translate it down into our unholiness. God cannot tell us by language, so he uses association and suggestion and shows how holiness affects that which is unholy. He shows Moses at the burning bush before the holy fiery presence kneeling down to take his shoes from his feet, hiding his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now, that day in the desert, put yourself in the desert, there were who knows how many square miles of ground and who knows how many thousands of bushes on each one of those square miles of ground. But this one bush on this one patch of ground was holy. Moses autobiographically documented this pivotal moment in his life in Exodus 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. 
He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. I just feel like he might have said that a different kind of way. Not maybe in proper English sentences. Like, what? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you were standing is holy ground. God had set that ground apart for his use. He had bestowed the quality of holiness upon it. Writes Culver, modern theologians sometimes refer to God's holiness in the sense of separateness or transcendence. In this sense, anything especially close to God or that to which he lays exclusive claim for his own service is holy. All the holiness that exists, therefore, is God's. He alone is the fount of holiness, and he alone confers it on others. So not only, we ask the question, what is holy? Well, not only is God's character holy, and his name holy, and his word holy, and his actions holy, and his presence holy, and his spirit holy, but also those things and those people that he sets aside for his service. For instance, consider Solomon's temple. It had an initial room called the holy place. And behind it was a second, more restricted room called the most holy place. Inside rested the Ark of the Covenant. Now these places were holy places designated by God in degree of holiness. And in the most holy place was the Ark upon which his very presence had rested at times over the history of his people Israel. Now once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. But if he didn't follow the ceremonial procedure exactly to go in there, he died. Think about that. God set up the priesthood, holy men, wearing clothes tailored to a holy standard, anointed with oil, made according to a holy recipe. Everything needed to be holy in order for that high priest eventually to go into the presence of God. And if anything was askew, death. So let's put this all together. God is altogether holy. His is a position of majestic glory, separate from sinful creation also. His is a purity unmarred by sin or evil, which means that anyone wishing to come into his presence must likewise be holy. Hmm. Further, he sets apart people, places, and things for his holy purposes. The holiness of God is a wonderful and fearful thing. It is a thing to inspire awe and also to inspire dread. So we've answered two questions. What is holiness and what is holy? We come then to the all-important 
important final question. What is our response to, to this? This is a question that we each need to answer individually. We all need to reckon with the holiness of God. Every person needs to reckon with the holiness of God. It is his holiness which informs his justice and his mercy. Scripture is clear that God will punish sin, something that we all commit. 1 John 1 outs us all. We are all sinners. If we say we don't sin, we're lying. Yet scripture is also clear that God is merciful. How can this be if his holiness demands purity? Which we are not. Well, God cannot be bribed and he doesn't grade on the curve like the top 20% are in everybody else is out of luck and God isn't forgetful and he never sleeps nor slumbers so he's always paying attention so how can we who fall short of his holy standard have any hope that we won't be consumed in his wrath during the day of judgment. Writes Richard Lintz in his wonderful essay on the holiness of God. The great and unexpected irony of scripture is that God shows mercy to the unjust. All of the manifest representations of God's holiness across the Old Testament foreshadowed the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. The shocking reality was that God would take the punishment himself on the cross for the sins of his people and thereby show them mercy in the forgiveness of their sins. This mercy was undeserved, which mercy must always be. But this mercy was also entirely just, since the entire punishment and penalty was paid by Jesus. Divine justice is not obliterated by divine mercy, but neither was God's mercy impeded by his justice. Remember, God's attributes are true all at the same time. The great mystery of the cross is the reality that it is the full satisfaction of divine justice and the full display of divine mercy. That is the gospel. That is the good news that if you have believed in Christ, that you carry within you, that your friends and family and other strange strangers need to hear our only appropriate response to the holiness of God must be a full-hearted belief in and dependence on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the receiving of his righteousness which is credited to our account 
I mentioned in the beginning of my message that our God is eternal, which means he sees the past and the present and the future all at the same time. Amazing. He sees our sin, even the ones you're going to commit this afternoon, and me too. And from that vantage point, he also sees a perfect substitutionary sacrifice offered up on our behalf. One who is willing to pay the judicial price due for my sins. To endure the wrath of God on my behalf. To achieve the forgiveness for us on our behalf. But all of this only if we believe in the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. According to Hebrews 10.14, For by a single offering he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, God knew the full entire package of what Jeff Howe would bring into creation. All of it. The ugly stuff, too. And he still said, mine. And if you've trusted in Christ, he's done the same for you. Mine. My child, says Jesus, my brother, the one whom I will advocate for, says the Holy Spirit, the one that I will pray for in words that you can't even put together. This is why the attributes matter. This will pull you out of the mud when life is just going horrible. And you need to be reminded why God has you here. Because you have a mission from him. You have a calling from him. And you're not a failure to him. He chose you for a reason. wrote the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, the Father, made him, the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Where do you stand? If you have not asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, today must be the day. Don't harden your heart and put it off because we all must reckon with the, the holiness of God. Well, for those of you who, who are believers, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Holy Spirit is the primary manifestation of the holiness of God in the church age. We're not expecting a pillar of cloud and fire to come over Trinity Community Church today. The Holy Spirit is here, living inside of you. This is a holy room, because God is here in his people. It's not an empty, dusty room full of spiders, like most churches are when the people are gone. Trust me, I know. I manage one. It's a different room when the people of God aren't present. But man, when they're there, there is something palpably different about, different about a room in the church. It's full of God's people. In his chapter on holiness, A.W. Pink wrote that God, which the vast majority of professing Christians love, is looked upon very much like an indulgent old man 
who himself has no relish for folly, but leniently winks at the indiscretions of youth. Ouch. Do we do that? Do we dumb God down? Do, do, we, do we view him as an indulgent old man who puts up with our foibles with a smile on his face? Yet Leviticus 19.2, the Lord directed Moses to tell Israel, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And this standard is reiterated for us, New Testament believers, by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, 14-16, where he wrote, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the expectation that God has, has given us, our Father has given us. Now, we could survey a great many New Testament passages to learn more. Time doesn't permit, and I suspect the specific answers to your specific questions about holiness are better answered in a discipleship setting, in a small group setting, in an accountability setting, with that trusted sister or brother who loves you enough to tell you the truth. Who cares about where you're ending up at the end of the day in Christ? I just encourage you not to try to run the race yourself alone. Remember the injunction of 1 Peter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Remember the warning of Hebrews 12, 14 to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Remember not to be like a 1986 Chevrolet Cavalier station wagon in bright red, which so effortless, effortlessly can go into cruise control. Not really thinking about God's holiness and the command to be like him. I pray that the study and contemplation and penetrating truths of God's holiness will saturate your soul and spur you on to an appropriate response of holy living. Perhaps the most celebrated author on the attributes was Stephen Charnock, a Puritan, a few hundred years ago. His work is regarded as the magnum opus. Charnock said this, this is the prime way of honoring God. He does not so glorify, we do not so glorify God by elevated admirations or eloquent expressions or pompous services of him as when we aspire to a conversing with him with unstained spirits and live to him and living like him. Only the Puritans can write that way. In closing, we'll soon be singing a final song, and it's the right song, the perfect song to nail down some of the truths that I've sought to share with you today. Before we sing that song, I wanted to read a passage, Revelation 4, verse 1 through 11. Why? Because these verses were the inspiration for the song that we're about to sing. Some 200 years ago, the author of this hymn read this passage 
and try to write a song that would chronicle the right response to the holiness of God. Revelation 4, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature, living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give honor and give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Father, we have peered into your word today for the singular purpose of getting lost in the thought of God. Lord, I pray that you would call us to respond to this truth, that you would enable us, Lord, to appropriate the truth of your holiness in our own lives, that you would enable us to appropriate the calling that you've given the believers here to be holy as you are holy, not that it's easy, but it's what you ask of us, Lord. May we give it our full effort in the power of your spirit. And I pray for those who are here who aren't yet trusting in Christ. Lord, I pray that they would have to reckon with the holiness of God, that they would see that you are willing, you are willing, Lord, to call them son or daughter, if they would but come. I pray you would do your work in each one of our lives today, Lord, and I thank you for the opportunity to open the word with my brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name I pray.